glad to be worshiping with you this morning. So she shared a little bit. I'm from a church in Salem, Massachusetts called High Rock North Shore, and I think we actually planted on the same day that you guys did, and so we're kind of like cousins from up north. Um, there are actually four churches in the High Rock Network. We all share the same name. We're opening a fifth one in January in Acton, Massachusetts. And there's a lot that we share. We share kind of vision and values and DNA and all sorts of things that we have in common. But you walk into any of the High Rock churches, it kind of feels like a High Rock church, but it also feels different because each of our High Rock churches gets to plant kind of based on the personalities of people in our individual congregations and where we live. So the one that I'm a part of is in Salem, Massachusetts. Has anyone ever been to Salem, Massachusetts? Okay, so a lot of you. And you might have heard about it. It's kind of, it's in the history books. But I'll tell you a little bit about Salem. So it's an interesting city. We, um, there it is right there. That's a little bit always from my house. It's kind of like a mini Boston. We have arts and culture and have kind of one of the most, like, prestigious art museums in the world is in Salem. We have a university. It's just fun little city to be a part of. It's famous for lots of things, lots of, lots of people associated with the witch trials that happened in the, 16, in the 1600s. But what a lot of people associate Salem with is that it's kind of one of the Halloween hubs of the world, it's one of the Halloween capitals of the world. So most of the year, it's like a usual kind of normal, quiet, New England town. And in October, it gets totally taken over by cray cray. We have, it is like insane in October. I live, I mean, I've lived there for three years, every year. I'm like, oh, it's October again. We got a million more people in Salem, a million. Normally, it's, there's 43,000 people that live there, and then a million more join us every October. And everyone is dressed as something else. Like, they're all dressed as someone different from who they really are. And this year, that person for most people was Princess Elsa from Frozen. <laughs> Yeah, so the number one, there she is. I like Anna better. I think Anna's way better. But everyone likes Elsa. So the number one, like they did a kind of statistical survey, the number one costume this year for Halloween was Princess Elsa. And the number two costume was different versions of Princess Elsa. Everyone was Princess Elsa. Was anyone in here Princess Elsa? Or know someone from Princess Elsa? Yeah. Every little girl in my church, if you were under six, was Princess Elsa, which is great if you love Princess Elsa. And not so great if you're prone to getting songs stuck in your head like I am. Because what Disney did is they made the catchiest song in the world. And they associated it with Princess Elsa. So Let It Go, that song, every single time I saw someone dressed as Princess Elsa, I got Let It Go stuck in my head all day. It was the worst for the entire month of October. Let it go was in my head. Think back to And now I'm going to do a few. And she's going to do a Thanks. <laughs> Think back to the last time you had a song stuck in your head. What song was it? Do you have any songs stuck in your head right now? Yeah. Yeah? What is it? Elsa's 
earworms. And most of us catch an earworm from time to time. Earworms can distract us. They can annoy us. They can get stuck in our heads on a loop without any warning. Some of us came to church this morning with an earworm in our heads. Maybe you're thinking about it right now. You're trying to focus. You want to focus. But then there's that song. It's buzzing around in the background of your brain, and it's distracting you from where you actually want to be. Some of us are experiencing that this morning. But there's a different kind of earworm. There's a different kind of earworm that some of us came to church with this morning that some of us are distracted with. There might be something else buzzing around your head this morning. It's on a loop, and you just can't get away from it. It's a problem at work, an unresolved conflict. Maybe it's an old hurt that's still influencing how you live and interact with the world. Maybe it's a struggle in a relationship, a health issue. You're worried about someone that you love. Maybe you're grieving an unmet expectation or an unrealized dream. Perhaps you're concerned about a friend or a family member who's going through something hard. Maybe it's money. It's that stack of bills that just keeps getting higher, that debt that you just keep sinking under. Maybe it's right at the forefront of your brain, or maybe it's just a faint hum in the background of the some of us came to church this morning with that kind of earworm. And it's distracting us. It's making us anxious. It's worrying us. Maybe it kept us up last night. But the promise of Jesus, when we have earworms rolling around in our brains, when we have earworms that we just can't seem to shake loose, the promise from Jesus is that it doesn't have to be this way. Not only can we live without fear and anxiety, but we can learn an entirely new way of life from Him. And that's what this morning is about. Like the video said just a few minutes ago, you guys are in a teaching series about story. And for the past few weeks, Andrew has been unpacking the redemptive story. He's been unpacking the story of the Bible. He's been unpacking the story of God, the story of the church, the story of us. It's a story that God invites us into. He invites us into it with our whole lives to participate in what he's doing in the world all around us. And so this morning, I get to explore the next chapter with you, which will hopefully be kind of another angle in what you guys have already been talking about. Because this is the part of the story about earworms. A few weeks ago, Andrew talked about what happened in the Garden of Eden. He talked about how we were created, created to be made in the image of God. And then as the story goes, humanity sinned. They fell into this sin spiral, this sin loop in the Garden of Eden. And the human race ever since then has spent just millennia at least trying to make up for it, trying to sacrifice and do enough and be enough with all kinds of things that would never be enough. But this morning, we're going to look at a different angle on that story. We're going to look at something else that happened at the Garden of Eden, something else that's common to the human race and is on some level an epidemic in our world. It started right there at the beginning. And for so many of us, it affects how we live. It affects our relationships, our marriages, how we parent, how we lead. It affects so many things about our world. It's this thing called shame. Now, I would imagine that most of us probably didn't walk in this morning thinking about shame as one of our top ten most pressing concerns. Lots of us kind of associate shame with trauma victims or with social outcasts or with people who live in the, the honor and shame cultures of the third world. But I would suggest that behind so many of our other issues in society, behind so many of our deepest concerns and worries, besides so many of the other earworms that are playing in the right now, 
this thing called shame. It's not something we talk about a lot in our culture. We don't talk about it a lot even in our churches. We hear a lot of sermons on sin, but we don't hear a lot of sermons about shame. But our refusal to bring it to light actually gives it more power. It gives us more power the less we talk about it. Researchers say that shame is universal. We all have it to some degree or another. It's a battle about our worth, a battle about our identity. It's a battle about our value to ourselves and to God, to each other. It's about all of the things that make us feel like we might not be valuable in the world. Shame is the culprit behind so many major issues in our society. Things like depression, anxiety disorders, eating disorders. Things like addiction, bullying, suicide, sexual assault, family violence. It's the culprit behind so many of our fights, our fears, our frustrations at work or at home. Our society is swimming in it. So many of us are swimming in it, and a lot of us don't even realize it's in the air we're breathing. So what is this thing called shame, and where did it come from? For simplicity's sake, I'm going to draw a lot this morning from the work of researcher Dr. Brene Brown. Um, Brene's definitions of shame, she's been researching this for uh, at least a decade now. There, I find her definitions of shame and the way it influences our society are pretty inaccessible to people in our day and age, but they also really match everything that I've studied about shame from millennia, from history and culture, from all over the world. She gave a TED Talk a couple years ago that quickly became the most watched TED Talk of all time because these things resonate with people. Brene interviewed thousands of people about how they experienced shame. And here's how some of her interviewees described what it was in their lives. Shame is when you can't do it all, and people can see that you're failing. Shame is internet porn. Shame is hearing my parents fight through the walls and wondering if I'm the only one who feels this afraid. Shame is being weak. Shame is my boss calling me an idiot in front of the client. Shame is feeling like an outsider or not belonging. Shame is being exposed. The flawed parts of yourself that you want to hide from everyone are revealed. You want to hide or die. You work hard to show the world what it wants to see. Shame happens when the mask is pulled off and the unlikable parts of you are seen. It feels unbearable to be seen. And so from these interviews and thousands of others, Renee came up with a definition of shame. She said, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. I'll read that one more time. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Put simply, Brene defines shame as the fear of disconnection. It's the fear that we're not worthy, that we're not lovable, that we're not valuable, that there's something about us, some ideal that we haven't lived up to, something we did or didn't do, that makes us not worthy of connection or love as we are. Shame is the universal feeling that something in you is not really enough to be loved. Not pretty enough, not good enough, not funny enough or thin enough, not rich enough or successful enough or strong enough. Not smart enough or interesting enough or creative enough, not worthy enough. Could you fill in those blanks? And when everyone finds out that you're not enough, you'll end up alone. In biblical times, shame was overt. People shamed each other in public. 
So every social interaction was a battle for worth and honor. In our day, it's a little more subtle. We might like to think it's a little more polite, but it's there. Shame is the earworm that whispers, you know why they left you out? You know why they didn't text you back? You know why they denied your application, that promotion, tenure? You know why you didn't make it in the gallery? It's because you're not attractive enough. You're not good enough, you're not talented enough or interesting enough. It's because you're weak. It's because you're a fake and they finally figured it out. Shame is the earworm that loops in our heads. Yeah, they like you now, but if they really knew, if they really knew what your basement looks like, if they really knew what your family looks like, if they really knew what your heart looks like, they'd reject you. So you better keep that heart tucked away. More often than not, shame is the earworm that drives us to hate our bodies, to compete for affirmation, to fear rejection, to stop taking risks. It's the earworm that keeps us from sharing our deepest longings. It's the thing that drives us to hide the experiences in our lives or the parts of ourselves that we fear others might judge. So often it's the thing that keeps us locked in jobs we hate, that keeps us from fixing relationships that are hurting, is the earworm that kills creativity, that kills spontaneity, and that robs us of joy. And when we feel it, when it hits, we are left feeling small and afraid and profoundly alone, like we are the only ones who have ever felt this way. But the good news from Scripture is that it was not meant to be this way. And God never intended it to be this way. So if you'll open back up with me to Genesis 2, which Andrew talked about a couple of weeks ago, the creation story. He started talking about the, the creation story in Genesis. The story starts with God presiding over the surface of the deep, and God creates creation. There are birds, and there are trees, and there are humans, and animals, and light. It's good, it's good, everything is good. But it was not good, God said, for humans to be alone. And so he made them for one another. The story begins with humans in right relationship with God, with each other, with the earth, and with themselves. The story begins with everyone in right relationship in healthy, life-giving connections with everything around them, right from the get-go. At the core of our human existence is this need to connect, is this need to be in healthy, life-giving relationships, to love and to be loved. We feel it when we get good news and we just have to share it. We feel it when we're sharing something personal with a friend and we feel really seen and known and we feel it when we're in bed with our spouse and we feel totally connected and loved and cherished as we are. We feel it when we're disconnected too. Like when a friend who we were really starting to get to know suddenly seems to lose interest in us. We feel it when we lose a job or an opportunity or when we break up with a boyfriend or girlfriend. When we get divorced. When someone we love dies. Because we were made, hardwired and created for isn't it interesting that right at the start of the story, right at the beginning, kind of at the crux moment, Genesis doesn't say, and there was no sin, although that would have been a true statement. Genesis 2.25 says, and there was no shame. Adam and his wife were both naked. They were totally exposed before each other, and there was no shame. This isn't just a statement about marriage. This is a statement about human identity and relationships. This is the world that it was meant to be. Can you imagine what that would have been like? 
imagine perfect trust, perfect definition in your identity, perfect clarity in all your relationships, no game playing, no guesswork, no passive-aggressive comments, no reading between the lines, no hiding, no fear. That's how it was supposed to be. That's how it was. And yet, even in the beauty of that design, Adam and Eve chose to go another way. They became disconnected. They became disconnected from each other, disconnected from God, disconnected from the earth. And as scripture says, they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So from this moment onward, things just kind of spiral out of control. From sin comes shame, and from shame comes blame, and from blame comes disconnection. And they just kind of get on this loop of sin and shame and disconnection and pain. And sin and shame and disconnection and pain. And it's all over the Bible ever since that moment. There are ten different Hebrew root words and seven different Greek root words that all get translated as shame. And they're all over the Bible hundreds of times. They appear all over scripture. And even when those words aren't explicitly mentioned, we still read them in the parables and the stories. They overlay all of these things, all of these poems, everything all over both Testaments. It was all over that world. And it's all over our world. We were born into a world, into a condition of disconnection. Things were created to be a certain way, and they aren't that way. This is why pornography is so intriguing to so many of us, or addictive shopping, or addictive alcohol, or addictive spectator sports. They never say no. They never say, I don't want you, you're not desirable, you're not strong. They can always simulate the connection that we crave. But whether we struggle with those things or not, lots of us experience that feeling of disconnection on a regular basis, that fear of rejection. For so many of us, it's an ache in our bones that won't go away. Shame is an age-old problem, but there's a lot of research being done in our day about how we first learn shame, where, where we first receive these messages. Our stories of worthiness begin first in our families. We learn them through the messages of how our parents talk to us, how they treat us, how they see us. We learn it most from how we see our parents treat themselves and how they talk to themselves. So just as a side note to parents, if you want your children to engage with life from a place of worthiness and love, then you have to model that. And that's kind of the hard truth for us. But these things get passed on beyond just our families of origin. They come from our neighbors, our leaders, our bosses. Some of them have heard, some of us have heard shaming messages from our pastors. We hear them from our spouses and our intimate friends. Essentially, the people who are closest to us have potential to teach us shame in the way they talk to us and treat us. And then we walk out the door and we see earworms all over our culture. There are multiple thriving billion-dollar industries all whispering the same messages in our ears. You're not enough. You should be able to do it all. You're not doing enough. But with our product, you can do it all. You can be enough. And all this can lead us to the idea that we don't measure up, that we're not enough. So we end up comparing our bodies to the younger women who live next door, or we compare our careers to the chair of the department or the higher-ups. We compare our parenting choices to the parents in the playgroup. We compare our lives to the unattainable media or our, to our, our families to nostalgic ideals of perfection, which are usually fiction, by the way. We can get really good at believing those stories about ourselves and about the world, but there's some measure of enoughness, and we just don't cut it. We don't measure up. And when this is our experience of the world, it can be really easy to 
reject that onto God too. We hear verses like, Christ's power is made perfect in my weakness. And we live like, Christ's power is made perfect through my perfection. We hear verses like, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. And we live like, my soul will rest when this project is finished. When I've lost 10 pounds, when I've gotten tenure, when I've been promoted, when my kids are exactly as they're supposed to be. We hear verses like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but would have eternal life. And we live like it says, for God so loved the world, asterisk. We live like there are footnotes and conditions in the Bible. And subconsciously or not, sometimes we think that unless we serve enough and pray enough and give enough and share our faith enough, unless we are enough before God, then God's just going to reject us too. I mean, of course Jesus loves us, right? This we know. We know, we know, we know, we know. But sometimes we still end up believing that he'll love us when we're good enough, just a little bit more. So we work, and we work, and we try to hide the rest. And what happens over time as these messages get ingrained in us is that shame becomes less about what other people have to say about me and more about the things that I start to say about myself. There was a researcher named Robert Hilliker, and he said, shame started as a two-person experience, but eventually I learned how to do shame all by myself. And those earworms that play, they start to guide how we live. Because if we believe that we are worthless, if we believe that we have nothing to contribute, then that will fundamentally dictate how we live and interact with the world. If what we breathe in is self-criticism or anger or rejection, we don't measure up to our own ideals, then that is what will come out sometimes subtle in subtle ways all over our friends and family. So now hopefully we have kind of a working definition of what shame is and where it comes from. A few things that shame is not. First, shame is not self-esteem. We think self-esteem, we feel shame. If you ask me about my self-esteem, I can take a step back, I can look at the context of my whole life, I can see where I've come from, where I hope to be, and then kind of the, the space in between. I can look at my story, I can process my strengths, my limitations, the things that I've overcome. But when we're feeling shame, we lose access to the context of our lives. We get tunnel vision, and all we can see is ourselves in struggle. All we can see is the way that we are inadequate and don't measure up. So first, shame is not self-esteem. Second, shame is not guilt. Guilt is about what I've done. Shame is about who I am. So just this week, I made a comment that was really thoughtless and it hurt one of my friend's feelings. And when I went to apologize to him the next day, I said, I feel so terrible. I feel so bad that I made that comment. That was such a thoughtless thing to say. That's guilt. But if I had gone up to him and I said, I am so sorry, that was so thoughtless, I am such a thoughtless person, that's shame. Guilt says I've made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. Thinking that way is something I'm pretty familiar with. Before I started looking at all this stuff in my own life, I, I uh, would just speak to myself in a way that was really unloving. Like, I was looking through some of my old emails a couple days ago, and the, the way that I would write about myself or talk to myself when I made a mistake, I'd say, oh, I'm such an idiot, or I'm the worst. That's shame language. Shame is about who we are. Guilt is about what we do. 
Researchers say that when it's used well, guilt can actually be a positive and healthy thing sometimes. It can drive us to make amends, it can drive us to fix relationships or to make things right. Potentially, it can even compel us to change. Shame simply drives us away. It makes us want to hide. It actually impairs and gets in the way of true change because all we want to do is hide and protect ourselves. Shame is one of our oldest diseases. It's an aftershock of the fall. So what did Adam and Eve do when they felt shame? Genesis says, at that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They go into hiding. They cover themselves with fig leaves. And so God calls out to the man and to the woman, where are you? God doesn't approach them angrily like this mighty smiter to smite them with a lightning bolt in his hand. God walks towards them, looking for them. Where are you? Where are you? And then next in the story, we read one of the most tragic lines in all of scripture. Adam says, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. God draws close, and Adam and Eve run in fear. They sew together fig leaves to cover themselves, and we do it too. Because like Adam and Eve, when we feel shame at who we really are, we sew together garments. We cover ourselves too. We hide who we really are. We try to take control of the situation. Because if we're afraid that where we are right now is not a good enough place to be, then we can try to go out and get what we need. Some of us so fake leaves of perfectionism because who wouldn't love a perfect person? How could anyone love, not love me if I'm flawless? Some of us so fake leaves of legalism or busyness or addictions to numb the pain. Some of us cover up by people-pleasing. Like if I love them just right, then maybe they won't reject me. We work hard to be successful because if we're successful by our community standards, then maybe we're foolproof and protected from shame. Some of us sow fig leaves of judgmentalism or criticism of others. It's a way to call attention away from our own flaws or our own fears that maybe we don't measure up. Because if I'm questioning my own worth, I can convince myself and those around me that at least I'm doing better than she is. But here's the problem. These fig leaves end up being counterproductive to us getting the love and belonging that we actually want and actually need, that we are actually created for. Our fig leaves only disconnect us because when we're all wearing fig leaves, we can't see each other's faces. We can't see each other as we actually are. They make us into actors perfecting and pleasing and performing for everyone else and becoming who we think they want us to be. So as we think about shame this morning, is there anything that you've tried to do? Or is there anything that you're trying to do to make yourself feel worthy again? Do you think there's some method, some approach, some ideal you can achieve to be enough to overcome the earworms this morning? Because the answer today, yesterday, and forever is no, there isn't. You can't. Scripture declares that in spite of our best efforts, in spite of all the fig leaves we try to, to sow, in spite of all the shaming and blaming and hiding and fear, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves worthy again. But the good news is that God has done something. God has done something. There was a story that Jesus told, and it's one of his most famous stories, so you might have heard it. It's a story about a man who had two sons. And one of the sons approached his father at some point and he asked him if he could have his 
day, that was one of the most arrogant, shameful, and disrespectful things you could possibly do to your father is to ask for your inheritance early. But the father grants him his request. He gives him his share of the inheritance, and the son takes it, and he squanders all of it. He squanders it on partying and prostitutes, and after he's spent it all, he's so desperate, he can't even survive, so he goes and takes a job feeding pigs, which in that day was also one of the most shameful and degrading things that a first-century Jew could possibly imagine doing. It was absolutely despicable. But eventually the son thinks to himself that maybe his father will let him come back and live as a servant in his household. Maybe if he goes back to his father, even as a hired hand, he'd be able to live better than this. And so he comes home, and as the story goes, the father, the father who he shamed and rejected and disrespected, he sees him from far away. And he takes off running towards him. And running in that culture was a very shameful thing to do, but he does it anyway. He runs towards his son, and he embraces his boy. And I can only imagine the conversations that were taking place around them with everyone who was watching, because in that moment, by embracing his son, by reconnecting with him, by inviting him back into his household, the father was taking all of the son's sin and all of the son's shame. He was taking it on himself. Jesus told this story to his contemporaries, and it rings true for us, too, because just a little while after he told it, he surrendered himself to being crucified. None of the gospel writers detail for the readers just what crucifixion was like. Everybody already knew. Crucifixion was a punishment that was so painful and so degrading that Romans refused to impose it on their own citizens. Those who hung on the cross hung lowest in society's rankings. It was assigned to only the worst kind of criminals, the basest of the baseline, the, the lowest kind of bottom dweller, to the most shameful of the ashamed. It wasn't just a symbol of retribution, it was an expression of total disgust, complete and utter rejection by all of society. It was the kind of death that was reserved for a person who was so reprehensible that they didn't deserve another breath, at least not one that wasn't gasping for air. We say that our world is going to hell in a handbasket sometimes, but I'm really glad I didn't live in that one. And that's how Jesus, the new Adam, the perfect vision, perfect embodiment of love and connection. That's how Jesus died. He died naked on a cross, fully exposed without a fig leaf in sight, experiencing the ultimate disconnection that only a sin and shame cycle could cause. No running, no hiding, no, I was ashamed because I was naked and so I hid. Just hanging there in shame in front of the world. And as he died, he said these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This word that Jesus used for forsaken meant complete and total abandonment. It meant complete and utter rejection and disconnection. It was total forsakenness. On the cross, Jesus actually was what we're all afraid of. He was rejected by everyone. He was rejected by his enemies, his closest friends by the God who had been so delighted with him. And in that moment, Jesus took all those earworms, all the things that make us feel rejected, all the whispers we've heard, all the whispers we've believed, and he takes them on himself. In the truest sense, Jesus died profoundly alone, profoundly rejected, profoundly disconnected, 
living out the consequences of our shame, our fear of disconnection, so we would never have to. He faced the disconnection that we caused in the world, and then he put it to death. It was finished on the cross. So now we have no more cause to be ashamed when we are honest about who we really are. When we lay open our actual need, when we stand exposed before God and each other, because all our sin and all our shame hung bare on the cross for all to see. And then with Jesus, it breathed its last. And three days later, he rose from the dead because he had defeated it all once and for all. And he remade us for new life instead, a life of connection and love and belonging, the life that we were created to live. Jesus loves us, not because we are good enough, but because, praise God, he is. And what this means for you, and what this means for me, is that we can be free of the fig leaves that we're still wearing. You can be free of the hiding, free of the masks, free of the worries that maybe you're not enough. Christ has peeled all of that away so that you can be you again. There was a theologian in the third century named Cyril of Jerusalem, and he wrote about baptism rites in the third century where candidates were baptized completely naked. So in the third century, you were baptized naked. No gym shorts, no white robes, nothing. You were baptized naked in front of everyone. Why? Because for them, it was a symbol that brought them back to the Garden of Eden. It was a symbol that they had been restored through Christ to the people that they were intended to be. No shame, no hiding, no fig leaves, just themselves as they were made. And this is what Cyril said as he was baptizing candidates. He said, In this also imitating Christ, who was stripped naked on the cross, and by his nakedness openly triumphed on the tree, for since the adverse powers made their lair in you, you may no longer wear that old garment. O oh, wondrous thing, you were naked in the sight of all, and were not ashamed. For truly you bore the likeness of the firstborn to Adam, who was naked in the garden, and was not ashamed. May the soul which has once put shame off, never again put it on. In Christ, we may no longer wear that old garment. We may no longer wear the old fig leaves. The old consequences of our sin and shame. May the soul which has once put it off never again put it on. Here's a small example of what this has looked like for me. So there was a day a few years ago I was just kind of trolling around on Facebook and I started to get curious about some of my old friends. And some of my friends that I grew up with in Southern California were like unbelievably beautiful back then and they are unbelievably and they have perfect families, and they just have perfect clothes, and they travel all over the world, and they look pretty all the time. And I was looking at some of their pictures, and I started to listen to the old earworms. Brain, you're not pretty enough. You're not thin enough. You're not successful enough or rich enough. And I took my computer, and I turned it around to one of the pictures, and I showed it to my husband, who was sitting next to me, and I said, am I supposed to be like that? And he said, no. You're not supposed to be like that. You're supposed to be like you. And that's the message for us in Christ. No, you're not supposed to be like that. You're supposed to be like you. No, you're not supposed to look like that. You're supposed to look like you. No, you're not supposed to live up to some ideal or standard that society or your friends or your family have set out for you. You're supposed to be the you that God intended you to be all along. In Christ, that's possible. And through Christ, it's enough.
Some of us are still wearing our old fig leaves. Some of us are still hiding, we're still listening to the earworms, the old wounds, the old hurts, the old stories, the messages that tell us who we are. The gospel is about changing those messages. The gospel is the resounding, unbelievable announcement that on the cross, Jesus changed those messages so that we don't have to listen to them anymore. The gospel is the good news that you have new truths that tell you who you are. You were lost, and now you're found. You were blind, and now you see. You felt dirty, now you're clean. You have a story that defined who you were. You have a new story and a new future, and now God defines who you are. You were disconnected, alone, ashamed. Now you are connected, loved, and accepted forever, and there is nothing you can do to earn that, and nothing you can do to earn it, to lose it. The gospel is the message that you don't have to become enough to be really loved, because his grace is enough for you. Yes, we still sin. Yes, there are still things about us that need to change. Yes, we still stumble, we fall, we say the wrong things, we hurt people, and we may get rejected by everyone else around us. But those things no longer fundamentally define who we are. Jesus says, and in him, all the fig leaves, all of those lies we believed about ourselves, all those things that tell us who we are and who we're not, all those things can be peeled away so that we're free to become the people that God intended us to be. So this week, if you find yourself with an earworm, this week if you find yourself afraid of disconnection or rejection, if you find yourself believing in some way that you're not good enough, and you find yourself longing for something different, something better, know that what you're longing for is Christ himself. And he has put those earworms to death with him so he can connect with you. The old has gone, the new has come, and it's available to you right now. And he promises that there will be a day when all the disconnection we still see in our world, all the shame we still feel, all the insecurity, all the worry, all the fear, all of that will finally be put to death forever. And all we'll have is love and belonging and freedom with him. But in the meantime, we'll still hear an inner word from time to time. And when we do, I'd encourage you to find someone else who can represent Christ to you. Share that inner word with someone who can remind you of Jesus who can remind you of who you really are. Say it out loud to someone who loves you. Journal about it. Tell a spouse or a close friend about it. Talk to Andrew about it. Sign up to be part of a home group if you haven't already been a part of one so you can develop relationships with people who will listen to you, who won't judge you, who can reassure you of who you are in Christ, who can tell you that you're not alone, who can remind you the truth about yourself even when you doubt it. Look for patterns in your own earworms so you can catch them faster next time. The simple process of giving them a name starts to take away some of their power. Even when it's painful, we have to talk about it because no one can overcome the fear of being alone. Alone. Driving that stuff up can be really scary, but if we are confident in who we are and in whose we are, then we're free to be honest when we struggle with our identity. And some of those things can take a while to work through, and that's okay. But we'll never get the earworms out of our heads if we don't get to the bottom of why they hurt us and give them a name. So we'll close this morning with the question that we started with. Do you have any earworms in your head right now? Do you have any songs stuck in your head? Any tunes? Any notes? Any past wounds? Anything that's drowning out the truth of who you are and who God is in your head?
have to listen past them all. And sometimes you have to listen really, really hard. But when you listen, when you really listen, you'll hear God pulling you into a new reality, a new future, into the kind of future that he promised us from the beginning, a future where there is no more death or crying or pain or sorrow or shame, where there is no more disconnection or fear of rejection, where all those things are gone forever because in Christ, you may no longer wear that old garment. May the soul which has once put it off never again put it on. 